We have to stand up against these things. We have to organize. This is the only way that anything is going to happen. Because they they understand that they have so much control over ones all over Indiana, but especially down here in the shoe. Because they don't respect nothing from no voiceless, unarmed prisoners in here behind the wall. Especially if it's not a large number of the prison population. So when we're back here on these lock-up units, there has to be numbers of support on the street and in population. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Just earlier this week, two women, both psychiatric prisoners, Wendy Wenton, 45, of Charlotte, North Carolina, and Nicolette Green, 43, of Myrtle Beach, were abandoned by the guards transporting them through floodwaters during the ongoing Hurricane Florence crisis. The women were chained in the back of a transportation van when it became stuck, and the guards climbed on top to be rescued, leaving the prisoners in their care to be drowned inside the vehicle. According to the New York Times, an organization called Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights plans to raise at least $5 million to pay for bailing out over 500 women and teens from New York's Rikers Island Prison. The bailout is part of a national campaign to end a bail system that critics say discriminates against people of color and the poor. Other mass bailouts have occurred around the country, but organizers say they think the bailout at Rikers might be one of the largest ever to take place. Kerry Kennedy, president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, says, quote, the crux of the issue is that in New York City we criminalize poverty. There are no wealthy people on Rikers Island because if you are wealthy, you go free because you make bail, unquote. Anyone eligible for bail is a candidate for the bailout, but a judge must decide first that the person poses no danger to society. Across the country, thousands of prisoners are facing consequences for their participation in the national prison strike. Some are being denied contact with the outside world. Others have lost access to hot food. Others have faced violence. For many, outside solidarity has meant the difference, like the prisoners who were illegally charged simply for participating in a hunger strike, a right acknowledged by the Indiana Department of Corrections. But a flood of hundreds of phone calls from around the world convinced the prison administrators to tear up the charges. Phone campaigns like this are being regularly called around the U.S. as a necessary follow-up to the strike. So for this week, we're sharing a range of stories about repression. Words from Kwame Shakur about the hunger strike they underwent, and a story of a group of students in Puerto Rico facing years in prison for their participation in education protests. They are at a different step in the process, but the repressive apparatus is still the same. As the recent phone zap demonstrates, though, what these students face is not an inevitability, because the repressive apparatus is vulnerable to our most powerful weapon, solidarity. In 2017, Puerto Rican students struck in response to a fiscal oversight board called La Junta, imposed by Obama and composed of bankers, insurance firm experts, and men with ties to previous conservative administrations in Puerto Rico. 
La Junta is managing Puerto Rico's $70 billion debt by inventing austerity measures that cut the costs of public services, like federal funding to public universities. Due to the cuts, the governing body of University of Puerto Rico agreed to raise matriculation fees across all campuses. University students claim that, paired with the high rate of youth unemployment and low minimum wage of $5.88, and even lower for student workers, that fee hikes would have a highly negative impact on student life. Hundreds of students barricaded themselves in UPR campuses across the island. Many say the student strikes were bigger than those down the coast of California in 2010, bigger in size, in length of time they lasted, and also in the way their concerns resonated with thousands of workers, unemployed, union members, and different nonprofit organizations across the island. So much so that in that May Day in 2017, thousands of demonstrators joined a general strike in the capital of Puerto Rico. Protesters met at several points in San Juan and marched down Ponce de Leon Avenue, known as the Golden Mile, in the heart of the financial district. Surrounded by bank buildings and glass high-rises, they gathered at a stage in the middle of the street and chanted, they won't stop us, they won't stop us, as salsa music blared from behind. The police fired tear gas and pepper spray to end a tense standoff with some of the protesters. Nina Dross was arrested during this mayhem. Nina is a Puerto Rican model, a self-proclaimed hopeless romantic. She has a distinct rockabilly style. Previously, she was an electronic engineering and technology student at UPR Bayamon. She's now serving a three-year sentence plus probation in the Federal Correction Agency in Tallahassee, Florida. She was held from May Day until June 12, 2018, when she was sentenced in Guayaba and transferred initially to Oklahoma. She was in solitary confinement for three months of that and denied access to visits. Asserting jurisdiction because the Banco Popular building in San Juan is used for interstate commerce, the feds charged Dros with, quote, malicious use of fire, end quote, conspiracy, which carry a charge of over 30 years in prison. The main principal piece of evidence? A video footage of a small piece of paper burning on a marble walkway outside the building. The feds themselves even admitted that the building was never on fire. Right before May Day, on April 27, 2017, the president of UPR, Nivia Fernandez, intended to announce a fiscal plan to La Junta that involved several campus closures across San Juan and a near tripling of matriculation fees. A negotiating committee among students formed in response to the impending announcement. They wished that the university would listen to their concerns, even if they were a massive protest of hundreds outside the meeting. President Fernandez had told them that they would be able to come inside and present a clear proposal. But when they got there, La Junta and President Fernandez refused to meet with them. I sat down with attorney Maria Nogales Molinini, who told me that in response, 50 people, not only students, but many people involved in the protest, gained access to the meeting anyway and approached the governing body, including President Fernandez, to request that they all sign their proposal to not triple the matriculation fees of their universities. To the students' surprise, the brave tactic worked, and according to Mariana, the whole board signed the proposal. But excitement over the signed proposal did not last long. 
In spite of promises made at the April 27th meeting shortly thereafter, seven students were arrested for the meeting disrupted and were called out of their homes at night to bright lights of TV cameras, which they were paraded in front of to the court in San Juan. Right now, they are facing their preliminary hearing, says attorney Mariana Nogales. She says that in Puerto Rico, it is in the judge's best interest to drag these cases out as long as possible to make political opposition look unfriendly to the citizens of the island while these budget cuts are implemented. The students now face a range of felony and misdemeanor charges, from intimidation to public authority, to violating the right of assembly, restriction of liberty and rioting, and some even carry a 15-year sentence. Mariana says that the students are up against an environment of repression, which served the political purpose of quieting dissidents in Puerto Rico. A few blocks from the university, I sat down with long-term political prisoner and Puerto Rican activist Oscar Rivera Lopez. Lopez was pardoned by President Obama on March 17, 2017. He is no stranger to an environment of repression, and his persistent role in community organizing from jail has been a rallying force for the island since his arrest in 1981. Parades have filled the streets since the time of his release, and many activists on the island claim his personality forges together many disparate movements. I asked him if he had any advice to the students facing charges or continuing to occupy the university. He asked this encouraging question, if they don't fight for it, then who is going to fight for it? Last year's occupation came to an end shortly after the arrests of the seven students when five UPR law students sued the university on their own to the tune of $1,000 a day to squash the rebellion and reopen the university. Students say that they did everything to make them look bad and to make them look like their purpose was to not let people study. Oscar says that everyone has to come out and figure out how to organize together to refuse these kinds of oppositions and counter-revolutionary maneuvers. The importance of struggling together, he says, the only way we can get things done is by coming together. The human resource is the most important resource in the world. Again this year in June, students reoccupied the university this time with less support than ever. They started out at 300 and ended in 50. While it was an echo of the previous year's May Day, as well as occupation, it looks as though the environment of repression might be slightly winning, and many students are afraid to strike, and many people are afraid to support the strike. We had organized the demonstration behind the wall to try to combat everything that was going on on the locked-up unit down there with they having us on the long-term segregated units, not being able to order the proper hygiene, being played out of our once-a-week phone calls, and they had been denied me medical treatment for a respiratory infection that had been going on. So we a lot of us, we all go out there to the rec pad, and uh, we just refused to come back to cuff up or to come back into the building until they could get administration over there and get the higher-ups so we could list our demands and grievances and let the ones outside the cell house know this is what's going on and let population know, like, we need y'all to get behind us so we have a voice back here. So nobody, there was never no violence, nobody got hurt, there was no injuries. The pigs never even had to hit the button and call for the E-Squad or nothing. All the case managers, the, the majors, everybody come over there, they start listening to what we're saying, they start putting people on the phone, they get me to see medical, and that was that. So we think we won, like we had a little small victory, and uh, two nights later, 
the East Squad came through and did a, a pre-dawn raid, um, snatched all 14 of the individuals up who was involved in the demonstration. And uh, as you know, you wrote the piece on when I was assaulted by the pigs on New Year's Eve down there at Pendleton, right? So the same officer who came and got me during the pre-dawn raid with East Squad was the same officer who had assaulted me. So he takes the zip ties off of me. And, you know what I'm saying, I had to get retaliation for what they did to me, so I got assault on the staff. And then since then, I've been to three different prisons in the past couple months, right? They ended up down here on the shield. All prisons in Indiana are on an extremely low frequency for any type of resistance or revolutionary activity. Because for the past 25 years or better, there's been no type of structure or no movements going on. So... Just at, at Pendleton, we was just now getting it to where there's steady political education classes and cadre development and the resistance was starting to build up against the police. But down here, they've really mastered the art and science of slave psychology and the mind control aspect of, you know what I'm saying, like psychological warfare down here. Um, that's why it's something that's important to one's not only on the outside movement and in these lockup units when we're talking about understanding the core issues and how that one need to understand like mass psychology and how powerful psychological warfare is when it comes to the oppressed individuals and classes, but especially when we're talking about in these slave camps and on these lockup units like the shoe and solitary confinement. like six blocks in each pot so there's 12 cells in each pot so they're not going to put me somewhere with somebody else who they know is active in the political movement or has the capability to organize and educate others so once I came down here it's basically like where I was at three years ago up here and I started back from ground zero and I'm having to start all over just to raise one's consciousness to even get them to even understand why we would need to resist organize against the pigs like for example when we tried to put down the hunger strike down here a few weeks ago it was because i get down here i'm hearing everybody complaining about what's going on the, the pig and air mark are strategically putting small proportions of food on these trays they're not getting fed like this in population these are the smallest tray i've been everywhere in the state and these are the smallest proportion of food i've ever seen put on these trays then they got it freezing cold back here. We're isolated in solitary confinement. And this is also the only lockup unit I've ever been to that says we're not allowed to order or have our sweatsuits or our shorts or anything that we have on our property. But that's because when you get that goes back to what I was saying about the mind control and psychological warfare. Like in any situation when you're trying to control somebody and break them down, like you keep them isolated, you keep them cold, and you feed them less, you know what I'm saying? And you would think that normally in a situation like this, it would make ones more combative and want to resist even more and stand against their oppressor. But it's the complete opposite, you know what I'm saying? So, it, it, again, there has been nothing like this for 20-plus years. It's been all gangbanging, drugs, and people are just so lost, you know what I'm saying? So, right now, it's like, I start from ground zero, let ones know, like, look, we have to stand up against these pigs. We have to organize. This is the only way that anything is going to happen. Because they they understand that they have so much control 
over one all over Indiana, especially down here in the shoe. So when we when we start to do the hunger strikes, it starts out good, everybody's standing strong. But in order for it to be a hunger strike, you have to miss four consecutive meals. So as soon as the next morning, the very first morning when we go on the hunger strike, they immediately come through and write everybody involved up for a class B group demonstrations and work stoppage and then linked the write up to a social media post by the comrades on the outside letting people know that there was an organized protest going on behind the wall. So that was a strategic move on them to get everyone to file back from getting behind the hunger strike and demonstrating. And so it's just, it's just things like that, right? Like, I'm sitting back, I'm listening, I'm hearing, because normally I'm not one to get in my, I'm not kicking no doors, I'm not going on no hunger strike, and I'm not really for no peaceful demonstration unless there's something, a mass number behind it, or there could be something on the outside tied behind it, so, because they don't respect nothing from no voiceless, unarmed prisoners in here behind the wall, especially if it's not a large number of the prison population. So when we're back here on these lock-up units, there has to be numbers of support on the street and in population. So when I'm here and when I'm talking about what's going on with these trays, they're tired of this, they're tired of that, we need to order, we can't get real hygiene, we can't get food, they're not letting us get in these programs, and the conversation that hunger strikes pops up. So they're wanting to just, on like some reactionary, emotional, knee-jerk type mentality, wanted to go tomorrow, the very next day. So I'm like, nah, if we're gonna do this, if I'm gonna get involved, I'm gonna have my people on the street and use my network, then it's gonna be right. We're gonna organize it. We're gonna draw up a list of demands and we'll have our people on the street push this and we'll do it the right way. So we took a couple weeks in here to, you know what I'm saying, going to Rex, spreading the word, then having you guys out there on the street link up with other ones behind the wall just to let them know, hey, this is what's going on. We're gonna take off on this day, right? Yeah. That was how that came about. And that was it was clearly a strategic move on their part because like we got the we got the IDOC policy from the head medical staff over the whole DOC and he's telling the pigs like you cannot write somebody up for going on a hunger strike. You have to respect the individual wishes to not eat or drink. So and then it states clearly that there's no official hunger strike until you miss four consecutive meals. So the fact that they bring breakfast at six in the morning and by I wanna say six thirty in the morning all these write ups are already filled out and then it had the internal affairs had contacted the lieutenant of the shoe uh, housing unit and alerted them that there was a post on social media letting ones know that there was a predetermined organized protest by prisoners to go on a hunger strike on uh, August 27th. So they already had been watching our social media and was aware from either from just their counterintelligence surveillance of everything that we do on social media and their informants in here in these blocks, they knew what was going to happen. So they was like, okay, when they, as soon as they skipped in first trade, we're going to come through with these write-ups and we're going to let them know and that's going to get ones to file back. So not only did they get ones to file back from that specific incident, but now it's in the, this goes back to the psychological warfare of now ones are thinking, okay, any further resistance that we try to do we're going to get a class A writer, we're going to get a class B writer, that's more time on lockup, they're going to take my TV, you know what I'm saying? Every day, people, we, a few more people would jump off the ship.
you know, I'm trying to let ones know, like, this is why they keep winning. This is why the joint is in the state that it is right now all over the state of Indiana because they see that there is no resistance. Every six months, we see them trying something different. You know what I'm saying? First, it started with the jumpsuits. They took away our tops and our pants and our belt and started with the jumpsuits. Then they come with the sack lunches at lunchtime. Then they see that we went for that and there was no real resistance in the joint or on the outside. So then they switched the sack lunch to being at dinner. So our last meal for 12 to 14 hours is a sack lunch. Then they come with the once a week phone calls. They see that we went for that and there was no real resistance on the streets or behind the wall. Then they come with taking the non-contact visits behind the glass and they're all video visits. Now they're starting to slowly take the contact visits in the joints. Now it comes with the mail. Now the pictures. They just can continuously see how far they can go. And when they see that there's no resistance, eventually these are all going to become complete lockdown units with no contact with the outside world other than what they allow us to pay for on their tablets or whatever parasite company they're going through now. Right? I'm pretty sure that due to whatever that was going on on the street and, you know what I'm saying, the support on social media exposing that too in itself was what caused them to drop the write-ups. Came down from the superintendent. Yeah, I made sure to further effort to keep ones going and not getting deterred from how many people fell off, how many people did right, how many people didn't, and the right of things. And just let ones know, like, the whole time we had outside support. Like, not only was this going on in Indiana, but there was a hunger strike going on all across the United States, you know what I'm saying, at that time from August 21st until September 9th. So even with it only being a small number of us down here, that's why I was never discouraged about it because the state internal affairs, the superintendents, all of them, they knew that this was a part of a bigger picture. So whether we had 15 or 20 people or 100 people down here at this joint, they knew that it was tied to a bigger situation within the movement itself. So ever since then, I've just been letting ones know, like, look, we had outside support. There was over 100 people who called down here during this, the four days that we was on a hunger strike on the shoot and people in population was starting to get involved. So I'm just right now, I'm letting one know, like, we have to start somewhere. The movement has been dead for 40 years on the street. There's been no movements in these joints, no prison movements, no revolutionary organizations, and the so-called gangs or street organizations have not been organized around any type of political indoctrination and ideology for the past 20-plus years. So we have to start somewhere, you know what I'm saying, whether it's five people, 12 people, whatever, you know what I'm saying. The only thing is I've seen that happen, any result of it was my medical situation, because when they come through asking why are you on a hunger strike, what's going on, two of my reasons aside from the lucid demands that had already been posted online and sent to the superintendent, the warden in here was, you've been denying me medical treatment, and since I left Pendleton and been to NCC and out here. Internal Affairs have my JPEG shut off, and I'm not allowed nobody to send me money. My entire JPEG account shut off. Where they've already had me on on JPEG restriction, where I can't receive 
or send no mail on the JPEG. Now they got it to where I'm, they're basically forcing me to be on an indigent status to where I can't order no hygiene, no stamps, no paper, no nothing. Nobody can put money on my books. If money gets put on my books, the DOC is taking it and putting something called a lockbox. And I'm getting to run around about that, but it's all trickling down. It's coming from IA. So, but nothing has changed on that level because IA is not even responding to any phone calls, any emails from the staff in here or anything that i pushed on them. But the only result that I've seen from the hunger strike myself was I've been getting medical treatment. I've been put on three different medications. They've been taken to get x-rays done to see if TV got any worse in my chest. And I got my blood draws done the other day. And that's, that's more than the whole two and a half years we've been dealing with this medical situation at Pendleton. They've done more in this past little two weeks than that whole two and a half years. So. Yeah, definitely in going forward, you know what I'm saying, this, this entire year we've, with IDOC Watch and Prison Life Matter, have just been creating this National Coordinating Committee. And like when we had the demonstration on July 18th in the spirit of Nelson Mandela, the main thing was getting the people together and then going amongst them people and able to create a task force and ask these people, what can you do? What can you bring to the movement? What role do you think you can play in this organization and getting people involved in these political education study groups? And so You have one minute remaining. Yeah, the, the main thing we, we need right now is we have to start organizing more on a grassroots level of organizing these student groups, getting ones who can go on these colleges and pass out pamphlets, pass out flyers, and start letting ones know about these political education classes and getting more people involved, right? say one more thing on that aspect about the grassroots part and just that we need to, right? In order to get ones to understand the need for a Prison Life Matter movement, we have to first get ones educated to understand capitalism and colonialism because ones out there right now in this new generation and people that's our age, they don't even understand why there would be a need for an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist movement. So we have to draw the distinction between the outside movement against capitalism and imperialism and the prison movement and how it all comes down to class contradictions and class struggle between the upper ruling class, the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat. It all boils down to socioeconomics, you know what I'm saying? There is no such thing as crime. These are acts of survival because of the mass disproportion of wealth and privilege in society. Like I said in a lot of my pieces and interviews before, nobody is out there selling dope or robbing and breaking into houses and doing any of this for a hobby. Like, if we can understand and break down to the people dialectic materialism and the antagonistic class contradictions then we can get them to understand why there's a need for a prison movement and how it's all connected and it's all one struggle, all one movement. My message would be to those of us who are already in the movement and is already out there organizing 
that we just need to take things to the next level, you know what I'm saying? We know what needs to be done. We know what the problem is. It's just time that we take our organizing and networking to the next level, you know what I'm saying? We have to start organizing these student groups and going on campuses, and we have to start focusing on raising funds and the agitational propaganda and getting these multimedia centers up and going and focusing more on cadre development. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.